everybody, Patrick Hunter here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's boxing history time, my friends. That means I'm here with my boy, Eris Pina, Convy Box Operator, and of course, just fight history file, like myself. What's up, bro? How are you doing? Everything's good, my man. How are you? Doing all right, man. You know, it's uh, seasons are growing colder and whatnot, but it's, uh, I guess the conversation's growing a little bit colder today. It's not a true crime episode. But I mean, the the feeling is similar. Unfortunately, it's it's a little bit of a downer. But the point being, we're talking about stuff where when we do these kind of more somber episodes, or we talk about tragic episodes or icky stories, uh, you and I have talked about this before. This are this is just an opportunity for fighters to be remembered. We're not laughing at it. We're not pointing. We're not anything like that. But we're talking about a couple of junior bantamweights today. Um, who both had, you know, they, they met at one point in 1991, mm -hmm. bounced off each other in different directions, and each met early ends, way earlier than anybody expected. Sticky stuff, man. Really, really is. So, yeah, the year is 1991. Um, how old were you in 1991, Pat? I mean, I was for most of the year, because my birthday's in November, I would have been, you know, like eight years old. So same, same. My birthday is uh, next month in October. So for most of it, I was what six, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the year is 1991. Um, both of us at least were old enough to remember what was popping back then. Simpsons, Arsenio Hall, and Living Color. Um, Hulk Hogan was on his way feuding with uh, uh, former GI Joe and now Iraqi turncoat uh, Sergeant Slaughter. Um, yeah, New Jack Swing was still in full effect. Um, New Jack City had just come out. 1991 was a good year. And another thing that was going on in 1991 was a promoter by the name of Cedric Kushner, my old boss, was being named IBF promoter of the year for probably the third or fourth year in a row. You know, it, it is what it is, man. Every boxing, especially a high level promoter, got good their old little Bob Lee. You know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. The cha ching, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. Changing hands. <laughs> You know, Stan Hoffman in the back there being a middleman and all this stuff. It, it was ridiculous times. But Cedric had a had a stronghold on the IBF. Um, Bob Arum, you know, had a little thing with, with the WBA, especially in the early 80s. Don King has always been affiliated with the WBC. It is what it is. So Cedric had an IBF guys. He had guys like, but really good fighters too. It wasn't like he had Shamwell champions. Like, he had dudes like Welcome Nita. Hell of a fighter. Um Another uh, another IBF, oh, uh, Orlando Canizales, one of the greatest bantamweights of all time and a guy that's, you know, in the Hall of Fame and rightfully so, absolute wizard. So Cedric was promoting, you know, really good fighters. And another one that he's promoting at that time was a guy by the name of Robert Quiroga. And Robert Quiroga was the IBF junior bantamweight champion. You know what I mean? A really small, undersized guy, but a hell of a fighter, made for a lot of fun fights. Um, Two-fisted, gotten your, you know, wasn't, afraid of anything and just made for a lot of memorable fights because like he didn't have tremendous power but he had respectable enough power and he just was a dynamite of explosion you know what i mean he just didn't stop and along the way um another junior band and white that was on the scene coming up probably a little bit before kiroga but also too was making strides and being heavily televised was a guy by the name of kid akim and about um i always pronounce i always mess up his last name and uh Anifa Woshe? Pretty close. Anifa Woshe. Anifa Woshe. Okay. 
I'm just going to stick to Kid Akeem for now. <laughs> well, and during the broadcast, they they got pretty creative and pronounced it like several different ways too. So I mean, I for quote unquote Western tongues or whatever, I know a, a lot of longer names are like not easy to pronounce for a lot of people. But yeah, Akima Nifawoshe, um, Nigerian fighter, and that was another thing. And even though even though he was not directly. Re- um, had no direct relation or affiliation with Cedric Kushner. He also seemed to have a lot of Cedric. That is he seemed to have a keener eye when it came to foreign fighters and foreign fights than a lot of other promoters and seemed to have a little bit more of an open mind as far as what he was going to be promoting. And, you know, obviously that that also made for Cedric was more of a kind of a peripheral promoter for a number of years with all due respect. I mean, of course he just wasn't uh, one of the big two or three promoters. Um, but that, he got to that position. He got kind of screwed over. Let's be honest. Yeah, Don't get me. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's like, it's like a mom and pop shop trying to compete with fucking Walmart. You know, you just like, you might have your niche or whatever, but when Walmart decides to like, you know, roll over and squish you. They, there's nothing you can do about it. It's all right. Um, another, I'll give you a, Sim, a Simpsons reference for Cedric right here. There is a, a character, not one of the main characters, but he's been so many episodes that people know him. His name was Gil. You remember Gil? He was a, <laughs> yeah. like really hard luck and always getting screwed over and everything like that, right? And then like there was one time Homer went to the went to the uh, car dealership. And he got really excited to buy a car. He was going to get it from Gil. And Gil was like, yes, I finally got one. Like, you know, he was all hyped. And when he walks into the dealership, straight out of something like what would happen in boxing, the guy goes, I'll take it from here, Gil. He was like, no, no. He was like, I'm about to make this sale. I need this one. He goes, mm-hmm. And he takes the sale from his hand and walks over. And, <laughs> and I mean, then, uh, and that no was better kind of example like, of that than the Rockmon situation, you know? Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's like... But yeah, you're absolutely right in that regard. He was the type of guy that he was known for putting on fights in exotic locations. Like, for instance, Leroy Murphy, who was his cruiserweight champion in the 80s. I don't recall him actually fighting in the U.S. that very often. You know, I mean, he'd either be in Italy or this place or that one. I think it was like the crazy um, knockout, double knockout that he had against um, uh, Moody, Crisanda Moody. Was it right? Um, I think that was like in Monaco or something like, you know, so it's like he would always hold them in different locations. And that was, that was one of his fortes. So like, even if it was an American fighter, like, um, Orlando Canizales, he traveled to the UK to fight Bailey Hardy. He fought, you know, other guys, France here, there, but he was, that was his known thing. His fighters were world travelers. Speaking of which, so Robert Quiroga. You know, he was he was no exception either. Robert Quiroga fought overseas a handful of times leading into this fight. You know, I mean, <clears throat> we've talked about so many fights, so many fighters on these boxing history episodes. And I mean, it's it's important to remember what it is we're discussing, what we're talking about, what these fighters are going through, how they often end up, how the stories generally end. And that's not, again, not because we want to be a downer, not because we're wanting to kick a dead horse or whatever, none of that kind of thing. It's just that, you know, we do have to have some sort of baseline respect for what we're talking about here and what these fighters are being put through. And this, obviously, the story of, uh, you know, Robert Quiroga and Akima Nifuwoshe, you know, it was the 1991 fight of the year. 
but it's one of those instances where almost like and I mean, I'm going to say some slightly taboo shit here, so hopefully nobody gets super upset. But there are a number of other fights that were really good where some crazy or really bad tragic shit happened. You know, and and they get... Um, speaking of taboo, that might be the best word to use. It's like taboo to enjoy them, taboo, taboo to talk about them, taboo to acknowledge that they were good fights. And this this fight of the year in 1991 kind of gets put on the back burner as far as good fights or great fights because of the outcome. You know, Mancini Kim, obviously awful, awful outcome. Absolutely ridiculous fight in terms of action. I mean, just brutal. And, you know, but it's the kind of thing where like, you know, you don't really want to go back and watch that a whole bunch of times or talk about it or, you know, post photos of it. Nobody really wants to do that. And so this kind of falls toward those fights, although the shit that happened in the aftermath was so crazy that it's like, it goes, you know, woo, you know, it's, it's, it's going to get better. And then, whoa, it really doesn't, you know, that's it's what's so crazy. crazy about this. It's such a crazy story that I'm surprised there hasn't been a documentary or anything really being done on it because of what we're going to get into with the post fight and everything like that. But I mean, it's, it's absolutely wild to, to think, you know, but both of their careers started on the fast track. Um, Kidda Kane, for instance, I'll you know start with him. His story is really interesting. I first, um, like you, Pat, probably learned. I first read about him from about you know obviously from the Kiroga fight, but it was only in magazines. When I first read about it, this you know years before YouTube ever existed or anything of that matter, and I just kind of read bits and pieces of that it was a great fight, but that he collapsed. You know what I mean? And then as a kid, my parents actually bought me uh, this book, Punchlines by um, the late, great Phil Berger, who was a writer for, what a, that's actually- New York it. Times. Um, I mean, I think he contributed to Sports Illustrated a number of times, but he, but yeah, he, he was a good writer and a prominent writer. Yeah, yeah, it was a great one. And I absolutely loved it. Like I devoured all the articles in this because like I learned about a lot of people in it. You know, I was, I read, there was articles about like Ray Brown, oh, not Ray Brown, um, Freddie Brown and Ray Arcel. It's, um, it's like a compendium of his articles. Yeah, so it's article. super easy to digest because you could just go article by article, you know? Oh, and it gives you like <clears throat> where it was written and everything like that. And like a lot of it was him being on scene talking to these people, you know? So like he had a really good one on Leon Spinks and Dave Jaco, that opponent we brought up plenty of times, but there was also one on Kid Akeem. And when I found that one, that was the most fascinating thing to me because, again, I didn't know much about him. I just kind of knew him from the fight that he had with Kiroga. But this article went very in-depth talking about, you know, his background, how, how he grew up, um, how from when he came here um, to America and fast-tracked almost, you know, from not even being like, uh, not even talking about his pro career, but being a very decorated amateur at a very young age. Yeah, no question. Um, it goes into just enough detail to give you a very good picture of like his childhood and how he got into boxing. There's, you know, a, a couple of funny anecdotes. It says that he had been getting picked on by his sister and got beaten up by his sister. And so he went into a boxing gym and first started learning how to box, but then kind of fell out of it, started getting into trouble, started, you know, getting in trouble out on the streets, joined some sort of street gang or 
something like that you know a bunch of street urchins going around robbing people which you know not as it's not a funny thing but nonetheless you know a bunch of kids and then at some point he robbed some lady who beat him up some lady who you know just whooped his ass and i i don't know if it's just that he kid akeem just could not take the embarrassment of getting his ass whooped by by a woman i don't know it sounds like this was not good for him so <laughs> two times uh, an ass whooping from a girl sent him to the boxing gym. He went back to the boxing gym, apparently. And it's funny. I'm remembering this whole story and the way he explains it is exactly like he straight up got robbed the wrong person one day. She just molly whopped him on the block. You know? Yeah. He was like a young teenager, 12, 13, 14, something like that. <clears throat> so yeah, you know, you think about you at that age, try to rob a grown woman. You might get fucking, yeah, you might, you might get got, and so that's exactly what happened. He took his ass back to the boxing gym and started actually uh, working in the boxing gym. And it, and it sounded like, too, uh, just to make a point, he did not come from poverty in Nigeria that I could see. His dad was a truck driver or a bus driver, and his mom worked in a bar or ran a bar. So it wasn't like they, at least from my, from my understanding, it didn't sound like he came from poverty, but that he chose to go onto the street for whatever reason so in any case he found himself back in the boxing gym and was good enough to make the nigeria national team and then um had traveled for i guess the olympics or for the qualifiers or something like that uh to the u.s and then when he had gotten to the u.s they asked him what his age was and the way that it's written it kind of seems as though he was probably expected to lie and say he was older but he did not, and he was only 15, and so Oops. no no dice, no no competing. I mean, that's wild, too. It's because, like, Eldrick <laughs> Taylor was 17 when he won Olympic gold. Um, I think the youngest U.S. fighter to win Olympic gold, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, Jackie Fields. I think so, yeah. 1916, though, so I mean, like, you know. And I want... I think the youngest is uh, who's that? Terry Spinks, I want to say. Yeah. Okay. Who, who was like, like fourteen or some thirteen or something crazy, like something. You and then you see pictures and you're like, wow, that's a kid. Anyway. You're totally right. Yeah, he, he you know, most people would lie about it. He didn't think anything of it because I don't think he knew that there was an age requirement, so he wrote fifteen, and he got denied. But instead of going back to um going back home, he decided to stay in the U.S. And initially, who he linked up with was um, the first guy that linked up with George Foreman, Doc Brodus, uh, the old trainer from the Job Corps. And Brodus was, you know, a no-nonsense guy. He wasn't going to tolerate anything, especially taking a guy like Foreman back in the day who was as reckless and mean and nasty as anybody you could ever meet. And he shaped him up to be like a, you know, a disciplined, good fighter. So he, he fell under his wing for a little bit. And um, Kedakim still stood as an amateur, but then... As is stated in the book, and also to like, um, this this box rec um, amateur record is way incomplete. Like every amateur record is on the, on that app. But this last fight as an amateur was, I think, in the World Championships, and he got robbed against a Russian fighter, I think, or something like that, right? And yep. from there, or at he, least he felt he was robbed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he even said it afterwards. He was crying. He couldn't believe what was happening. He was like, he was just really just because he was a person. Kid Akeem was that the person that like, and you'll see as we talk more about him. He was a guy that was like had a lot of high belief in himself, a lot of you know, 
a lot of self-belief and nothing really phased him. Like he was that, he was that guy, you know what I mean? And anytime something like when you have so much self-confidence and you're built off of that and then you get your shit rocked, like, you know, either you lose or something happens that really rattles, you take it harder than other people can. And that's essentially what happened with him there. So instead of trying to do that, that's when he decided at that point to turn pro. And he was still a high school student at this point too. Excuse me. So he's in high school, like a lot of you know fighters that started early out. And Sean O'Grady, a bunch of other ones, they're still students writing the books in while they were knocking out palookas and God knows what on weekends. And Kirakim was no different, fighting every few weeks or whatever, making um, purses, um, six hundred sometimes to a thousand, whatever. Like he was building himself up, but at the same time he was building a following because where he was based out of. So. Yeah, so he was in Las Vegas. Doc Brodus lived in Las Vegas, even though George Foreman was, you know, quote unquote, discovered or whatever in Texas. Um, Doc Brodus lived in Las Vegas, and so that's where Kid Akeem was staying. And supposedly he was in high school and was a straight A student, and uh, you know, picked picked everything right up, like here in the U.S. and did great, assimilated, as they say, very well, um, and just kind of was living his life and doing well as a fighter. You said, like you said disillusioned with his last uh, amateur fight and decided to turn pro. And so, <clears throat> you know, as, as any fighter is developed, you know, they're probably going to find out fairly quickly. Is this fighter worth latching onto? You know, is this fighter worth supporting? Is this fighter worth pumping money into? Are we going to get anything out of this fighter? And Anifa Woshe had international amateur experience. That alone, you know, having gone to the World Amateur Championships, uh, which I think was in Reno, I want to say at the time uh, that year, um, you know, uh, having potentially gone to the Olympics, et cetera, you know, that, those are pretty lofty things as far as an amateur record goes. So somebody with those kinds of things on their amateur record, you know, verifiably are going to be in somewhat high demand, you know, and on top of that, he's 112, 115 pounds. He's like five foot seven, five foot eight, which is really tall and lanky for that weight class. It, you know, it, it makes sense. That's uh, the kind of fighter that you're probably going to want to keep an eye out for. And so, you know, you go through, like you said, um, Anifa Woshe's record. And yeah, there's some kind of regular characters on there, guys with like 10 fights or less, some guys making their debuts, et cetera. However, you do see a number of fighters with winning records. And that's something that you might not see these days through his, you know, maybe first 10 fights or so, which, hey, you know, I mean, he was obviously, they were expecting something out of him. Um but we've also talked about this before too. So getting into, gosh, I'd have to say without counting real quick, it's like 18 fights or something like that. He wins the NABF junior Bantam, band, I'm sorry, NABF junior bantamweight championship. And like you and I have talked about before uh, the NABF, like some other of these like secondary organizations back in the day, it's not that they were mistaken for actual world title belts, but they did have some sort of meaning because they could propel you forward in the rankings and get you a shot at one of those world title belts. And that's one of those things that was followed a lot more closely back then than it is now. Cause there's just so many fucking belts that you can't, you know? Oh no. Most you can't. And um, you know, at the, the jump on you for that, like on your back with that one, it's absolutely true. Like the back, if you're an NABF champ or a USBA champ, for example, um, that, automatically put you in the top 10 
You know what I mean? And usually if you won that title and you're in a hot division, there was a good chance you were going to be defending that belt on TV. Not necessarily HBO or Showtime, but there was a chance, you know, high probability you'd be in the main event of, say, USA Tuesday Night Fights or ESPN show for that matter. You know what I mean? Like that fight, those those networks always showcase, you know, USBA title fights, NABF title fights, and guys like that. Like I see Charles Brewer defending that belt before he became world champion, various others. Like those were high profile fights. And usually after that, the guy that was, you know, the champion, NABF, USBA, whatever it may be, um, soon after, they, um, they would uh, jump into an HBO opportunity against world champion or Showtime for that matter, or sometimes even like on a pay-per-view undercard, you know, just, it, it was good. So, and I felt um, for Kid Akeem to be an NA, uh, to be NABF champion in a division like Junior Bantamweight definitely means he's going to be hot-shotted to a title fight relatively quickly because that wasn't even a deep, like super deep division to begin with in terms of like name recognition, stuff like that. Um, one more example, it would be a guy like, um, now this is a really deep cut. There was a dude by the name of Henry Hot Pepper Brent, who was a flyweight from New York City in the early 80s. That's kind of crazy to think about, right? That, you know, a guy from New York, that was a flyweight, like, because not many American flyweights were around back then. But he had a record of like nine and five or something like that. And he was a two-time USBA champion. So. Well, and, and often you see a lot of, uh, not to belabor the point and also not to pick on these little guys. Cause you know, we love the smaller divisions it has nothing to do with that, but you do often see a lot more of the records where it comes to fewest fights before winning a world title. You often yeah. see them in the smaller weights. I mean, well, not just because they're smaller weights too. A lot of those fighters were former Muay Thai champions who got into boxing, so they didn't really need much of an introduction. They just fucking, you know, in their fourth fight, fought for a world title, and it was fine. But in any case, uh, that's something that you do see a lot more of in the lower weight classes. And unfortunately, sometimes because there's less, you know, competition, there's just not... You got to scrape the barrel a little bit sometimes, unfortunately. Sure, sure. But... Kid Hakeem was getting, you know, the fact that he was based in Las Vegas at this point. Now, top rank, he was working with top rank and he was being featured on TV. And like you said, too, like his, his, you know, some of the level of his competition was a little iffy going up. But he was doing what he was supposed to do with these guys. He wasn't like going the distance with them. He was blasting them out unceremoniously and looking really good doing it. Like he had a personality to him. He was a good looking guy. He wore flashy trunks. And at this point now, Miguel Diaz as we know, Hall of Fame world-class trainer took over with him. And Miguel Diaz, um, till this day, will always say that Kid Akeem was one of the most talented fighters he ever worked with. Like, he was just a natural, absolute natural in the ring. And he looked the part, too. When you would see him on ESPN, there's, you know, clips of him. Not many of them, but there's clips on YouTube. He's just blasting dudes left and right. He looked like a miniature Thomas Hearns back then, you know? He actually was working with Roger Mayweather, too. And you could see it uh, a little bit in the fight with Kiroga. Wow. You could see just a tiny bit. Um, well, and in a, and not a not good way, too. And that's something that we see with fighters these days, too, trying to emulate to bad effect. And um, But, yeah, he was working, looking good. You know, he was a, a, a good-looking fighter past the eye test in terms of what he looked like in the ring obviously made uh he there were a lot of mistakes he made with his style but he was making it work for him 
and yeah, was looking really good. Um, it, and actually we'll, we'll get to the kind of pre-fight in a second and kind of pivoting over to Robert Quiroga, who was mm-hmm. a kid from San Antonio. Um, you know, he was fairly, it sounded like generally speaking, he was somewhat quiet. You know, he was a guy who was, uh, fairly connected to and, uh, in tune with his community and his family sure. and, um, <clears throat> I don't really know that much personally about his early boxing upbringing and I couldn't really find a ton. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, you know, was written about him later on focused on other stuff, but regardless, I do know that he was considered, um, you know, a hot prospect and a very exciting fighter. And he was the kind of fighter who you definitely wanted to watch. He was an action fighter, pressed the issue, uh, brought the fight had good power in both hands. Uh, you know, it's not a whole lot really to ask for from a fighter, I guess, you know? Um, yeah. And so, and that's also, I'm sorry to, I know you were just about to say something in Texas too. Uh, there's this, nothing has changed in the last several decades. Texas has always been something of a hotbed when it comes to boxing and like local boxing. Totally. And, you, you know, I'm trying to think about, like, what the Texas boxing scene was when Kiroga was coming up in the late 80s. So, you know, the Aiellas were, that was a whole disaster in itself. So, I mean, that wasn't really in the picture. Stevie Cruz, by the time Kiroga started, you know, making strides, I think had lost his uh, WBA title to Antonio Sparagoza. So, he was out. Um, Donald Curry was fizzling out at that point. And I'm sure I'm missing someone. I'm sure there's some guy that was like from Texas that was really popular, but Hiroga got a following from where he was from. And in San, Ot- in San Antonio, always being a hot fight town in itself and, you know, a popular bumping area, like he he got a following. You know what yeah, I mean? I was, I was about to say, yeah, the Canizales brothers are from Texas. Oh, yeah. Okay. There you go. I was, I was like, dude, we're missing somebody. Yeah. Hold on. I know, like, something I knew was off here. I knew but, like, Texas always, you know, had is like known for like homebred, like, really passionate about their sports and their, their sporting icons, whether it's like, you know, the Cowboys, or especially football, they love football out there, but like and other stuff. But when it comes to boxing too, if they got a good fighter, that's really making strides and doing something, you know, and it's a positive guy and not just an actual like jackass, like someone like Adrian Broner, um, <clears throat> excuse me. They will stand right. They'll get really behind you. You know what I mean? Remember when uh, Errol Spence, for instance, what was that on a Cowboy stadium against a no holder? Uh, was that the Ugas fight or no maybe not ten. like he fills someplace out against like Ocampo or somebody didn't he um I don't remember what fight it was but I know that he's gotten some support in Texas yeah huge huge support out there so um you know it's like Kiroga was one of those guys and plus like you said was exciting style he was can't miss so he's going through the strides of just fighting like you said suspects of coming up because again it's not the deepest when you're still moving up so you know some of the records on box rec they might be a little incomplete here and there i'm sure when these guys were introduced to the ring they weren't being known as zero and four and three and six and stuff like that but by the time in 1989 when this is when some of the more recognizable names come up for him well the first name that'll pop up to you is joey olivo and joey olivo was another um very different looking type of junior flyaway flyaway back today former world champion tall guy i believe too so 
he just looked a little awkward and odd for his division, but he was a guy that won beat um he beat Hot Pepper Brent for the USBA flyweight title. He also fought um Hilario Zapata and a host of others. Like he was a guy that was around. He was the one American that was a really good fighter in the very in like the flyweight divisions of the early 80s. So for him to beat uh Alivo and um score a notch over him belt like that, even though it's 1989, is still like a very big win. And then from there, you know, after a couple of more uh, defenses of the USBA belt, he fights um, Juan Polo Perez. And this is for the IBF championship. And obviously this is Cedric promoting this because it was taking place in the UK. Um, a Colombian and a dude from, uh, and a dude from uh, San Antonio, Texas fighting in the UK. So Juan Polo Perez, um, for me, when I grew up, and you probably remember, I'll uh, agree with this too, Pat. I just knew him as being the guy that was always getting knocked out anytime I picked up a magazine. There was like a thing of Perez getting stopped by this person, that one, had men knocking him out with this. Like <laughs> anytime I picked up a boxing digest or a ring magazine or KO and it gave you the summary of what was happening, there would be Juan Paulo Perez getting starched by someone in it usually. And it was almost always some fighter that like you, it was in some foreign country that you'd never got to see that fighter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so we had a bad impression of Juan Polo Perez, is what we're saying, unfortunately. I mean, by the mid-90s, but, uh, you know, to give him credit, he was a good fighter before whatever happened. He just hit a skid mark, you know, skid row, and then just, that was it. You know, once you hit that bump in the row, that was it for my man. But, I mean, before then, he was decent. And, but, he uh, Kiroga beat him for the title. And then, um, like we talked about in the beginning of the show, that's when he went on his little world tour. He fights Vianney Neen, um, who was a very good underrated South African fighter from the late 80s and stops him. And he fought him in, um, in Italy. See, that's Cedric's way of just, you know, taking his champions and putting them on tours like that. Vincenzo Belcastro, that one makes more sense. That was held in Italy as well. And then we get to the fight that we're about to talk about right now with Kid Akeem. Yeah, so he fought <clears throat> three fights in a row, including his title winning effort out of the United States. The fight immediately before that was against another San Antonio kid named Ray Medell, El Leoncito, who was not like a super famous fighter, but was a local fighter and was like a, I don't know if I would say beloved, but a fighter that people liked. They rooted for him in San Antonio. And it was a fight between two local San Antonio Antonio guys. And uh, so Caroga won uh, a commanding decision against him and had not been back since. And so what wound up happening was that Cedric Kushner picked this up and was handling the promotion. And I could not say exactly why. I have absolutely no idea, no answers. All I know is that the reporting on it going into the fight was that they had expected a much bigger crowd. They were saying, oh, we're going to jam in 10,000 people. Um you know, into the this uh, arena that they had. They had had a handful of fights in the last few years before then uh, that had done very well. And so they had expected this to sell very well too. And by like four or five days before the fight, they had only sold 1,500 tickets. And they were, and so Cedric Kushner and uh, the other people who were involved in the promotion took to the newspapers and were saying, we're expecting a lot of walk-ups. We're expecting a lot of walk-ups. <laughs> it's, the, you know, it, it's the age, this is 1991, dude. Here we are in fucking 2020. They still say the same thing. 
was the same fucking line in 2023. It was funny. But, you know, they're expecting a lot of walk-ups and shit like that. It wound up only being about uh, 3,500, 4,000 people total. So not like miserable, but not very good either. But they literally said that Kiroga went out to the park where people were gathered in the park and was telling people to go to the fight, was going to clubs, was going to just like random places, other sporting events, uh, literally was like beating the drum, like doing his own promotion. Um, and, and I mean, on it, on some level, fighters are expected to do some of that stuff, but it sounds like he was going like above and beyond to get people to come to this fight. Um, and it just sounds like the main takeaway here was that it was kind of sad. Like it was sad that he was from San, he's from San Antonio and that he should be well known because he's a world champion. Uh, but that they're really struggling to sell tickets and they can't really sell tickets. And it's not his size either because a number of the successful fights that they had had there at that same venue in the last few years were other lower weight fighters. So it's like, this is not a very good sign. Um, and so that's kind of a lot of what the pre-fight promotion had to do with. And then they get to the pre-fight press conference. Um, at the pre-fight press conference, it sounded like they didn't really know each other that well, but shit heated up pretty quickly, like real quick. Started cursing at each other, started cussing, started saying all sorts of shit. Um, Akima Nifawoshe, like I said, Kiroga slightly quiet a guy who probably doesn't normally talk a whole lot of shit anifa woshe was saying uh, uh he would bet his make a make a side bet basically winner take all bet bet his purse that you know on whoever won or whatever and kiroga wouldn't do it and he was saying like oh you know this is this is texas we don't do shit like that out here and anifa woshe said well then you're acting like a woman and that's of course here we go and Kiroga got all riled up. They started wah, you know, squabbling at each other and stuff like that. And that's how it got all heated up. Um, bet you a purse. It's like the most bullshit. What's that? No one's ever taken that bet in boxing, even though they all did it. Like, I think Not since like boxes. 1872 or something. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I'll take that bet, Sonny Jim. Yeah, yeah. no. Dude, nobody's taken that fucking bet. But that was enough, I guess, to rile each other up and snipe at each other and stuff like that. So there was a little bit of bad blood going into this fight, uh, even if it was not, even if it was slightly manufactured from the press conference or whatever. But nonetheless, you know, it. like I said earlier, it's a good fight. It, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a very good fight, bruising fight. But the thing that's like, you know, messed up about it too is that there was already signs that things just shouldn't have been the way they were. First off, the IBF allowed six ounce gloves for lower weight fighters back then. Six ounce gloves is insane. Okay. They use, correct me if I'm wrong, they use four ounce gloves in MMA, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Which is a little finger lit nothing. And so, but that's different. It's like the the five uh whatever. 15 um five minute rounds that they do and then most of the time too because of this grappling and other stuff it's not just strictly but this is boxing like where you just use your hands and with two guys who are known to be ultra aggressive guys that have considerable power and they're going to come full on at each other and we're going to use six ounce gloves that's just a recipe for disaster in many ways and that was kind of the start of it but like 
Um, I think for another thing too, this was on, this was on pay-per-view and I remember this, um, cause in a magazine I read, they were talking about this being only like 10 or 15 bucks to buy compared to complaining back in the nineties, how pay-per-views were like 60 bucks and rightfully so cause inflation would be you know around the same price today or something. So it's like, um, but that was, that was the main thing that was like six ounce gloves right there. It's just kind of like, wait, what? And then from the start of it, it was just absolutely a vicious war. Like Chiroga was a, was a two-fisted just machine. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't an out and out brawler. I mean, he wasn't an offensive wizard, but he wasn't a guy that just walked in and ate like four punches to land two. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't like that. He had, you know, technique to his game, but he was an extreme pressure fighter who threw multiple amount of punches around. And like you said, Kid Akeem, he was more of a boxer, but he was a guy that threw a lot of punches too, especially if you came at him, he was going to try to knock your head off. And he was trying to do that when he was keeping right there and going toe to toe with him. But Chiroga was able to negate that and get right in him pretty quickly. And what it started was, was just like, like you said, man, like in a war of attrition, but it was more so like Kid Akeem's precision punching against Kiroga's volume. And at first Kiroga's volume was what was looking, you know, ahead so far. <clears throat> That actually, um, that reminds me too, because the glove issue did wind up coming up in the aftermath uh, and, yeah. you know, getting back to the fight in just a sec, that reminds me, I'm almost positive that he, while he might not have been leading the commission, I'm almost positive that Dickie Cole was working on the commission during this, during this time period. And this was right around when he was ratings chairman for the WBC too. So, I mean, all sorts of conflicts of interest, interest there that are just like, what the fuck? But so the IBF, like you said, was allowing six ounce gloves for these lower weight divisions. It was like, I think, bantamweight on down or something like that. And um, so, but Texas was, Texas supposedly at the time was not allowing six ounce gloves at all. So there must have been some sort of wrangling and, as crappy as Dickie Cole was, dude, I definitely would not put it past this dude. In any case, uh, I just reminded me in any of that. But in any case, getting back to the fight, dude, early rounds, very bruising. And I think that you can see even just a few rounds in where it's like you can see both fighters. It's like they don't really seem like they want to fight this fight. Like they like they neither of them really like they don't really want to brawl. Because yes. both of them are kind of like, they're trying to move their head. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to slip. They're trying to, you see Kiroga doing a lot of, what are they, I've heard it called a couple different things, like pitch and catch, pitch and, yeah. you know, pitch and counter, or catch and counter, stuff like that, where, you know, you kind of ride with the punch and then counter back. Yeah. He's doing that like all fight long. And it's just like, it's a good strategy against somebody who doesn't have the style of Anisha, Anifa Woshe. And then in the exact opposite, Anifa, oh, Anifa Woshe is in times fighting in the style where he's bringing his right hand down to about here instead of leaving it up. And then he's bringing his lead hand so that it's out over here. And he's just getting cracked with left yeah. hooks, fucking left and right and leaning right back into him. And so you can see that like, it's just the exact wrong style. Like it might work against some other fighters, but not this one. And so both of them are just fighting the wrong style against the other one and just beating the shit out of each other for it, bro. Oh, and it was really bad. Like, Kiroga and his pressure and and, um, and Kid Akeem, like, 
Kiroga's face right away too, because he had that type of, you know, again, this, uh, it's like, the way- like immediately. Yeah. It's the bone structure around him. Like, you know, the cheekbones and stuff like that. Like he cut, he would, he would always cut easily. That was, you know, one of his things in his yeah, fight. My face used to get super red. Like, so I, it's like, you take like two punches and you're like, you know, oh, absolutely. And then it happens because like, you know, cheeks right there, it's kind of sharp it's slit. Right. And by like second or third round, bah, he was already cut really, really badly in the fight and it didn't really stop him. I mean, as he got cut, he was still, like you said, man, just whooping him with combinations to the head and body left and right. And oh man, with six ounce gloves too, dude, it's just like. You know, Robert Kiroga wasn't a guy that was a knockout puncher, but he was a volume guy. And you keep on getting hit over and over and over like that by a guy who just keeps on on nonstop. It's going to take its toll on you after a while. It's going to take a heavy toll on you, in fact. And Kid Akeem, though, to his credit, was just standing there. Like you said, he was fighting the wrong fight and he was taking a hell of a lot of punishment, but he was dishing out a lot of it, too. It was just almost like he was just trying. It was just hard for him to keep up with the whole volume of what Kiroga was putting out there there was so much offense going on that it's almost difficult to gauge what exactly is happening with the momentum. Like you don't, you don't really know who's winning this round, who like who's, it would be like, you know, uh, Anifa Woshe was doing a great job with his jab. And then he'd like pepper off a couple like bap, bap, you know, one, two, one, two, three type of shit. And they would all land. And then all of a sudden he'd get hit with the left hook and kind of pitch backward. And then he'd look immediately. Okay. And you're like, what the fuck? Are you hurt or not? Like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, bro. That, but also, a lot of the fight looked like that. And also, too, what was really noticeable was that where all the punishment Kyrogo was doling out on him, Kid Akeem looked unscathed. Like, he didn't look like he was even in a fight. He had a little slight swelling on his face, but, like, otherwise, he looked, he was pretty unmarked. Kiroga's face was falling apart at the seams. Each round, it was getting a little bit worse. It was cut over here, cut over there, swelling really badly. Like, he's taking a hell of a lot of punishment. And even though he was winning the fight in the majority of the rounds, like it was a close fight, but like you have to sense that Kiroga was still just kind of controlling things a little bit, even though it was vicious as shit. Uh, you were wondering if his face was going to hold up enough to, to make it to the finish line because there was many times in there in that fight where it just looked like it wasn't going to end well for him. You know what I mean? He took a lot of punishment. Lips was all cut. Like his whole face looked like he got mugged. You know, someone took a bat and just bashed him in. Oh, but, the the replay where uh, there's a replay where the punch that cut him open, it like yeah. barely touched him. It was like the most grazing shot and it just slight or right over his eyebrow, sliced the shit out of his eyebrow. And I mean, you know, it shit happens. Fighters get cut. It's a fight. But like, yeah, he looked bad, dude. Uh, however, toward the middle rounds, Anifo Oshe, I thought, started catching up and started looking like... Uh, Kiroga started looking at a few points like he wasn't entirely sure what to do like mm-hmm. yeah bobbin weaving whatever but neither of them had super great head movement apart from the occasional bob and weave type of shit and then they're both still getting just bashed and then Kiroga started looking like maybe he was getting a little bit tired the problem the big problem for Anifa Woshe was that in like probably four or five different rounds he was doing pretty well for the like maybe two minutes, two minutes, 30 seconds. And then Kuroga would just start slamming him with shots and like, especially against the ropes and Anifa Woshe was going up against the ropes. And I think that this is where the commentating was a little bit off and they're like, Oh yeah, he's taking those on the gloves. And I'm looking at it like, mm, well, he's taking all those on the gloves, bro. Not all of them. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's eating some of those for sure. 
And then you finally started to kind of see a little bit of damage on uh, Anifa Woche's face, or at least mostly his lip. It looked like something was bleeding in his mouth, and his mouth was wide open. Um, so, I mean, you know. Fun of punishment, bro. And, oh, and it was brutal. I think, because I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think CompuBox tracked the fight. But, um. No, they, they even said early on, they said, I wish we had a punch stat or a punch counter because we don't have any, you know, I'd like to know what blah, blah, blah. So Patrick wasn't putting out the money for no stats. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were already losing enough on the, on the, on the promotion as it was. Um, yeah, it sounded like it didn't sell very well. Well, it was estimated that Kiroga landed over 400 punches and just almost to just to strictly to the head, not even counting his body afterwards. So. That's insane. That's like combined more than what Tyson and Ruddick landed in their rematch, or even both of their fights, probably. No, Anifa Woshe landed plenty too. So oh, I mean, it's not like that was yeah, like yeah, it, it was, was two way traffic. It was just a brutal. Well, it's one of those really vicious fights that, like, you know, you know, afterwards that you're going to be aligned with that guy forever, but you hope it's in a positive way. Like you just sit there and you embrace, and then maybe have a rematch one day, but you always kind of like. Like Gotti and Ward, for instance, everyone wants that, you know, beautiful Cinderella story and them becoming uh, brothers at the end and such, right? And you would hope that was going to be the case with this fight because it was so brutal, but like neither guy really gave it an inch, even though that, you know, one swayed at one point, the other one swayed, the momentum came here and there. But like, you got the sense that it was a close fight and a fight that could have gone either way, maybe, you know what I mean? And then the scorecards don't reflect that. But, like, from me watching it, I always got this. I, I thought that Kiroga won it. You know what I mean? Like, going back and watching it again, like, I thought he won it by, like, it was a very close margin. I didn't have it the way the judges had it. But, like, I thought Kiroga might have edged it by a point or two just by his overall, you know, activity and everything else that he did. But, like, it was a really close fight. And then if you look afterwards, too, if you look at Kiroga and you look at Kid Akeem, who looked like the winner and who looked like the loser? You know what I mean? Kiroga looked like he was just came out of a gory car wreck. Kedakim just looked like he, you know, had like a tough sparring session for like eight rounds or so with like a slightly bloody mouth and like, you know, a puffed up eye, but nothing worse to wear. And so it was one of those fights that like everyone realized they saw something special and everyone's kind of like, you know, high fiving and clapping and saying, wow, man, this was incredible. And then the tragedy struck. Yeah, this is where it kind of, you know, if the fight weren't enough, mm-hmm. the fight was damn good. You know, was it fight of the year level? Yeah, I'd say it's fight of the year level. Yeah. I mean, Definitely. there aren't a whole lot of fights where I'm trying to think of like, you know, Chacon, Chacon Limon 4, Gotti Ward 1, but not all the way through, just a couple times. Uh, Morales Barrera 1. You know, uh, Sith Chachawal, Monshapur. Yeah. There aren't was a whole Gatti, lot of fights. Was Gotti, was Gotti Wilson Rodriguez fight of the year? Well, I'm I'm trying to think of fights where, like, there were just times where the fighters just, like, let go. And we're just like, you know what? Like, let's fucking do this. And at yeah. a couple times, that's what the, that's what happened. And, like, not even because they wanted it with Kiroga and Ifawosha. You know what I mean? Like, they just were like... Bro, we've gotten our ass kicked so much in this fight, we got no choice but to stand here and punch, you know. And so, 
there aren't a whole lot of fights where that actually happens. You know what I mean? Like nobody really wants to get hurt. So somebody's going to try to get the upper hand every so often though, a fight like, you know, that should happen in a fight and that should have happened here a bunch of different times. So in any it's, case, but like that's a cut you. I'm so sorry, but like, yeah, think about that, bro. It's like, again, the, to go back, Kid Akeem did like, it was his self-belief. Remember after losing his last amateur fight and believing in himself the way he did, he didn't think anyone could ever beat him. Kiroga fighting in his hometown finally after years of being, you know, a roadway champion. He's not trying to lose in front of his town either. So it's like that's even brings it even more so that these guys are gonna be fucking each other up like that. So and that was actually something that Kiroga specifically said going into this fight, too, was that he fought that dude Belcastro, Vincenzo Belcastro, immediately before this fight. And he said, you know, I fought this dude in Italy. And the uh -huh. fans, you know, I like, you know, damn near whitewashed him. And the fans were just like nonstop cheering for him. Like they were coming, showing out so hard for this guy. And I want that. Like yeah. I, I felt that when they were fight, when we were fighting and I want that in my hometown. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's, that's a totally different kind of motivation. And then on the opposite side, Nifa Woshe wants to go into this guy's hometown and show him what's what, you know, totally different, but similar motivations. And so Kiroga winds up coming out with a unanimous decision with scores that perhaps might not be reflective of how the action really was. It was very, very close. Um, and yeah, I think that though, what kind of edges it for Kiroga, like I said earlier, was that he stole a bunch of the rounds and did very good work late. And it was good work. Um, immediately after the decision is read, from what I was reading about reports, his trainer and the person who was basically Anifa Woshe's like um, assistant, I guess, like because he, I guess, used to travel with some with somebody who was with him uh, mm -hmm. frequently, and it was another, I believe, Nigerian dude, but I'm not positive. Uh, in any case, they asked the guy when he was interviewed, you know, what was going on? And he said, yeah, he was the only thing he did was he came up and asked me, how did I look? And then the next thing I knew, he rolled over, vomited blood and like passed out. So and that's and that's uh, pretty much what the officials who were standing around were saying similar things that he was talking. He was standing there. He seemed fine and then just kind of fell down, vomited, vomited blood and then. And uh, his manager, his friend person also said he swallowed a lot of blood, that he had swallowed a ton of blood because something in his mouth was bleeding. So he was taken to uh, a nearby hospital and basically they didn't make it clear whether he fell into a coma or whether he was put into a medically induced coma. It sounded like he, he fell into a coma. Um, but uh Kiroga also wound up having to go into plastic surgery for a few hours after the fight had an awful cut he had something I think going on in his mouth uh there was something else like he said his arm or his hand was messed up I mean you know he he got banged up pretty good too and he wound up finding out that Kiroga was there that Anifa Woshe was hurt and you know he he said somewhat standard things you know that he didn't mean to hurt him that he basically that you know this is what we signed up for that we were he wasn't trying to do anything on purpose um but actually it's it's actually kind of crazy too because it's not very often when a fighter i mean uh, thank thankfully it doesn't happen that often in general but it's not very often when a fighter like passes out after a fight or uh you know goes into a coma or something like that 
usually when that happens, like a very high percentage of the time it ends very badly, whether it's death or permanent uh, disfigurement or permanent disability, like severe disability, like sure. Magomed Abdusalamov, for instance. It's was... not often that fighters survive when they get to that point, and when they do, it's usually not mm -hmm. a full life or, you know, functioning, quote-unquote, normally. Um, but somehow, somehow... <laughs> Akima Nifuboshe, they, you know, kept updating his condition and said that we don't know, but he seems to be improving. You know, his wife, apparently, you know, a couple of days after he was in a coma said, yeah, oh yeah, he's moving his legs when I tell him he's moving his hands, um, et cetera. Like they said, do you fight at 118 pounds? And he's mouthing yes, or 115 pounds or whatever. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm not entirely sure medically or physiologically what the fuck happened no idea but somehow but, he woke up the thing is that um in the uh in the article as well like you said he did he kidakim did wake up and you know i think he was also he was shocked at first because i he, clearly he didn't know what happened to himself and then when he realized came to the realization that like i think he said that he saw himself um in the mirror saw like you know gnarly scar on his head and he was all weak and he was like kind of in a wheelchair and stuff and he didn't know what the fuck was going on and like you know a person that was like so strong and strong-minded and had all these goals and ambitions in life and thought no one could beat him and all of a sudden he's being told he's never gonna fight again and he has this scar on his head and you know his life has been altered even though he miraculously came out of it like clearly he's gonna have some issues in the long road of recovery ahead it's hard to accept that type of, you know, it's really, really hard to accept something like that. And um, when he finally was able to go home in the book, they talked about, and this is a guy like, you know, almost like delusional too. And I'll explain what I mean is that um, they asked, he was asked, you know, so how are you doing today? He was like, Oh, did you know, I walked around. He was like, you know, and Phil Berger, I think it was like, um, I asked him suspiciously if someone said, Oh, you walked around today. He was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like, I walked around, you know, uh, three blocks or something like that. Sharon just walked behind me just in case, but I'm good. He was like, I did this, I did that, and all this stuff, right? And then after he got done saying that, you see his wife, she had to help him, like, get into his wheelchair and then try to move him somewhere else because he was, like, kind of too weak to really move. And then he asked her afterwards, did he really walk all this? And she said, no, he didn't do any of that. So. Yeah, it's, he said that he had plans to fight again. Um, you know, that he was, you know, just wait, just wait until I get back in the ring, going to resume my career. That wasn't quite in the cards for him. Uh -huh. Um, and it's actually not totally clear, uh, at least a portion of the story. I couldn't really find much confirmation. Um, but there was other stuff that I did find confirmation about. So. After Akima Nifuosha wakes up, mm -hmm. he decides that actually when he was in his coma, he had a dream. And he dreamed about a, uh, a man, a witch, like a witch doctor. Mm -hmm. And so he traveled back to Nigeria to undergo an operation okay. to get blood drained. 
and got a number of different slices made on his body and got quote unquote blood, black blood drained from his body. Okay. And I mean, I'm not trying to talk shit here, but like the this is this falls under the umbrella of known like con artist shit. Oh. Like I don't know if you remember that video probably a couple decades ago now where like dudes were uh performing surgery, you know, with their oh. hands on people and like using Andy like Coffin. like chicken guts and you know, you know what I'm saying? That like was Andy Coffin. Andy Coffin went to the Philippines to get his uh for when he had cancer and when he was about to pass away and he went there for that to the Philippines for that um for that treatment. And it's just trickery. It's just yeah. trickery. They picked that up and they said, Oh, we took out this amount of them, took out that amount of them, did this, did that. He went back look, to the US. Look, like, look at this bowl of weird looking shit, and it's like some fucking they, like, chicken fetus or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely ridiculous. And basically, in any case, that's what that's what he did was he went back to Nigeria and it got this operation done. And he said that he got the operation done by the man that he saw while he was in his coma. Oh, okay. <laughs> if that kind of, you know, anyway. So that was one of the first things that he did. But then when he had come back to the U.S., he came back to the to the U.S. and um, it was basically revealed that in the lead up to the Kiroga fight, he had been arrested several times on drug charges and it had been kept quiet by whoever it was that was handling his PR. Mm-hmm. That it somehow, if it was leaked to the press, that they were asked not to report it or perhaps it just wasn't ever leaked to the press. And that it turned out that Akima Nifawoshe had been, according to the police, very... Uh, very much connected to the cocaine and crack dealing business in and around Las Vegas for like a number of years and pretty much throughout his fighting career. And that he had been dealing drugs primarily and had been arrested several times with like rocks and rocks and rocks on him. Um, and, and was also using according to them. And what was the Caparis? Well, when you said, um, we discussed this right before the show started, this shit's kind of crazy. Um, as they, as he was being stretched out and they were taking off his clothes, you know, his, uh, his trunks and stuff like that, they, apparently they found some cocaine in his protective cup. He was carrying during the fight. <laughs> yeah, like probably so he could do some bumps immediately afterward or something. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's something, I, that's something I know a lot of wrestlers have done back in the day, especially back, you know, in the heyday of the 80s or stuff like that. Some of them just kept a little, you know, some vials or whatever right in their um in their trunks. But for a boxer to do that, I've never heard that, especially before the biggest fight of his career. But I, that's what I've been. That's what I, that's what I've read. That's what we've read. I think it's been verified too. That's act. That was actually yeah. No, that was like not a. That was actually a ringside physician who found that. So that was not some like cop story that you know. What are we listening to? Is some investigation? No, like that was a ringside physician. That's insane. (laughs) So I mean that it doesn't sound 
you know, it sounds like there was a lot of deception going on and there was a lot of shit going on. People didn't know about, he had three, he had three kids. And, uh, so basically he had three kids and he had left his wife, uh, in the aftermath of this fight. And he was literally running the streets and became a literal like riding the rails hobo. Like, like literally rode the rails to LA, like for whatever reason he was going to LA and was riding rails from Las Vegas to LA, which is a fucking awful, like that's a terrible stretch. It's just desert and nothing. But in any case, Jesus Christ. So there was a lot going on with Anifa Woshe. Um, needless to say. And like I was saying before we start recording, dude, like, um, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a doctor, but it really would seem like all bets are off. I mean, like when you're adding the this mixture of potential drug abuse and potential long-term drug abuse of something like cocaine, and then you're adding it to, you know, like uh, a fight where these guys are just taking punches and punches and punches. It's not a good mixture, dude. It's not a good mixture at all. It's, I mean, it's a terrible mixture at that point. You know what I mean, like it's when you're, when you're doing a lot of outside of the ring activities, you have vices like that and, you know, stuff that definitely affects your body, something like cocaine. And then you're going in there and having an incredible fight um, to that point where Kuroga, it's, it's not, it's not a good mix. And you'd have to think too, that if he had that in his cup, chances are he was using either before the fight that day, something other, something around that time. So if they got drug tested, he probably would have popped. Well, I'm not sure. Did he? Did they even test him or? Yeah. Texas Commission, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially this is 1991, 2023. They're still completely screwed up. Yeah, they it. might not even tech, test it now. Much, you know, I would imagine though, and even though it's not my thing, I would imagine that cocaine would be popular with fighters, dude. It's out of your system pretty quickly. You know, it's uh, it, it would kind of go with that sort of up lifestyle. I would imagine a little bit better than something that's more of a downer. I don't know what do I know, but sounds it's bad. Coming up in Vegas in the '80s, you know, it's still as kind of like a a dude who you know fresh in the United States and kind of being thrust into that scene as he turned professional. It's probably not easy. Probably not difficult to say uh, see it, find it around. You know what I mean? So that's the. Sin City, bro. That's no, no. Sin it's, fucking it's City. But with all that being said, too, and all the, the, the things he was getting into and like riding the rails and all that, he still had it in his mind that he was going to still make a comeback in boxing. Because why not, right? That's That was that was his type of belief that he had. He still believed that he was going to come back and fight, and he still believed that he was going to be a world champion on top of that, which is insane on so many levels. Because once you suffer a brain injury, that should be it. You're never allowed to fight again, um, unless you're Joe Macy, apparently. But, um, you know, it's like he, he was, you know, still training, I guess. And even Miguel Diaz in an article in a KO magazine article when he was being interviewed for something, and he mentioned Kid Akeem as being the most talented fighter he ever worked with. Um, he said that he talked about it or he said, yeah, he suffered that brain injury. And then we heard that he got out the hospital and he wanted to start boxing again. And so we were like, fine, we'll start working with him again. And he wanted to. Like Diaz was willing to work with him again, which is, again, very questionable in itself. But um, none of that really panned out because eventually he ends up getting deported. 
Well, and and it sounded like Miguel Diaz felt really bad too. Like he oh, was ready to quit. Like he had never uh he had never been close to like a situation where a fighter had gotten seriously injured and he was basically like, you know, what the fuck are we doing here? Like having an existential crisis type of shit. And Cedric Kushner also said that he had never, he was like, I've been involved in so many fights and I never for one single time had ever had a fighter, you know, get seriously injured. So that was Cedric Kushner's first ever time too, you know? Um, so yeah, you talked about deportation. What wound up happening is that he sells, Inifuoshe sells crack to an undercover cop. Classic. Well, dude, he had, he had apparently gotten like several different like stays, you know, like for like sentencing for different various things, like, or he had gotten let off light or gotten sentence shit, charges reduced or dropped or whatever. And so there are all these instances where he probably should have been deported like long before this or something else should have happened long before this until finally he sells to an undercover cop. And then he gets taken to the same, I believe, facility that later on Ike Bayabuchi was taken to in Arizona. Like it's basically in like an ICE or like an immigration holding facility for immigrants who are going to be deported. Um and he was held there for a while before he eventually being deported back to Nigeria. After that, I don't know. After that, I cannot find any like actual confirmation about what happened. And after that, it's just kind of speculation. But Absolutely. the speculation is pretty wild. It really is. And so Diaz, again, alluded it, um, alluded to it in his KO article, because it's kind of the same thing we all know. No one really knows exactly what happened or where it happened the exact date or anything like that for that matter it's just that after he got deported um there was it was known that what's no what we do know from the small bits that we do is that like he tried boxing again like we've talked about you know what i mean um he tried getting back into the ring and out there um you know i guess it's easier i guess to to convince people to want to work with you or whatever and he started getting working and training again working out and um apparently sparring and uh, i guess after one day he was sparring or something like that they said he um complained of a headache uh went to go take a shower collapsed and just suddenly died there were rumors that it was an unsanctioned fight there are rumors that it was sparring the rumors that it was training you know i mean it's so there were a lot of kind of things unsubstantiated about it that nobody really knows for sure the only thing that's certain is that he, he died. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, this is one of those situations where, there, I mean, there have been a, a number of situations in boxing where a fighter died yeah. and they wind up finding out later that they actually had an injury from years before or weeks before or a month or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like similar to how uh, Benny Perrette, many people speculate that it was actually the Fulmer fight where he got absolutely destroyed for yeah. like two straight rounds. Many people speculate that it was actually that had a lot to, I mean, pick your poison either way he got pummeled. But in any case, uh, yeah, that's it's not unheard of for something similar to happen. Very many examples. You got um Luther McCarthy, who was the great white Pelkey, hope. Yeah. Yep, that everyone thought was gonna um the throne Jack Johnson or at least challenge him one day. And he was on a horse like a day or two before his fight with Arthur Pelkey, got thrown from it, suffered, you know, got beat, got banged up, but uh, not enough that he thought anything of it. And 
So he had an injury preexisting that no one even knew about, collapsed in the first round, barely even getting touched, and died right there. Um, you have that one. You have uh, people attribute Max Bear beating the absolute daylights out of um, uh, what's his what's his what was the what was the contender that died from Primo Carnera? Um, oh, uh, you know who I'm talking about? I, yeah, I just can't think of his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but people attribute the bear fight to him. You know, bear beat the crap out of that poor guy uh, before that fight, and you know others like that. So yeah, yeah. It's it's so I who knows what really happened. I don't really know, but it doesn't sound like it was anything nefarious, like some gangland shit or oh, like no. some shit where it was like set up or some you. Know, like I said, dude, bets are off. Uh, potential long-term drug use uh, and a style where he took a fair amount of punishment, even just in that one fight. Who knows, man? The possibilities are, they're vast. Um, It's just so dangerous though. Like the main thing is that he tried to probably try to get back into boxing, but with a brain injury, like you never, you're never going to fully recover from that. And like a guy, when I mentioned Joe Macy earlier, like he didn't, he suffered a brain bleed. It's different from getting like a major clot and having going for like massive surgery for hours, like like Kid Akeem did, and others had to go through that. You know what I mean? But even he should have never been able to come back from that, and he was allowed to, you know, and have and which was really controversial in itself for a few fights that he had before he was forced to retire again. But Kid Akeem had a major like brain. It was a bad brain injury, like a bad one. You know, he had a clot. Like they took that out. They the doctor said essentially because his pupil was dilated they said that his brain was like all the pressure of it was trying to push his brain out of like a second it was akin to like squeezing a tube of toothpaste your brain is trying to squeeze out of this small part because all the pressure is coming out of it and it's just it's bad really really bad and the fact that he tried to come back and then you know have to get deported because again what else is he gonna fall back on there's literally nothing he can do now goes back into boxing because he thinks okay i got over this i can still fight and then I'm sure, I don't know if he was sparring without headgear, but like you said, a fight, whatever it is, but getting punched in the head with headgear without it after a brain injury is going to be a recipe for disaster, so. Yeah, man, it's it's bad stuff. Um, like I said, it's really impossible to know exactly what happened, but cool. it sounds like a lot of it was kind of shrouded in mystery. On the other hand, Robert Kiroga, um, I mean, you know, he, for the most part, led a fairly normal life after this. Um, it sounds like he wasn't that adversely affected by, I mean, not that I could see anyway. I'm sure it did affect him. I'm sure seriously injuring. After that, he didn't have a long career after that fight. So. No, he didn't. And, you know, like I said, he's kind of a strange temperament, uh, kind of quiet almost seemed he sounds like the kind of fighter where you'd have to prod him to talk, get stuff out of them. You know, I've, yeah, I've done a lot of interviews. Low, absolutely. Very I've done key. a lot of interviews and I've, there've been a number of fighters where I'm kind of just like, you got to pull stuff out of Martin, you know, and yeah. he kind of seemed like that a little bit. Um, and yeah. yeah, so I don't, I don't know what his temperament was like as a fighter or whatever, but he fought again. It's not like he never fought, fought again. It just took a while. Immediately after the fight, he said, oh, doctors are saying that it'll probably take six months of healing, but I'm pretty sure I'll be back before then. 
that was not the case, dude. He was pretty beaten up, man. Like he was, he was pretty badly beaten up, to be honest. It, I mean, with a facial damage like that, you have to take a long time off because it's going to be tough. Like a fight like that, even though you came out the winner and you never really recover from that either, not only mentally, but like the physical, the physical aspect of it too. Like you mentioned, Ray Mancini, Duck, who came, that was such a vicious fight. Mancini wasn't on top that much longer after that. Um, you have Nigel Benn when he went to hell and back with Gerald McClellan. He was not champ much longer after that. His career kind of was never really the same. Um, and again, Robert Quiroga, like he, he did fought again. He did, you know, he had a couple of more um, title defenses. But by the time he went to against an absolute bruiser by the name of Julio Borba in 1993, you know, the gas tank had run out at that point. And Borba was a guy that's never really mentioned today and kind of one of those junior bantamweight champions of the 90s who more or less is like more just I remembered in the record books as opposed to like fans having fond memories or whatever. But he was a bad man, a very tough guy, man. He was a very heavy fisted fighter. Yeah, and, he was a puncher. Yes. All right. And just built like one, too. It was one of them typical tanks. And a guy like, um, a guy like, um, excuse me, uh, fuck, I just messed up his name right there. Um, Kiroga. Well, you know, already the damage that he's accumulated over his career, the facial damage that it just all you got to do is breathe on him. He'll probably start cutting and caught up. And, you know, he ends up getting stopped in 12 rounds. So you think his career is over by that. And he makes a one-off comeback against a guy by the name of Ansi Gedeon in 1995. And if you remember that name, that was because he was known for being homeless while being, you know, a top contender at one point, like living out of the gym that uh, Jesse Reed, that he trained with out of Jesse Reed. Good fighter, though. Very good fighter. Didn't have the best record, but he was only 10 and 7. But um, he scored an upset, went over Kiroga, and Kiroga promptly retired after that. Yeah, the Haitian hammer. Yeah. No, I followed him as a kid because I read that Ring Magazine article. I thought it was interesting that, like, you know, he was homeless at one point while living in the gym and being a pro fighter. And so I started following him. And then he ended up fighting um, uh, Botelli on Tuesday Night Fights. Yeah, he Gone. lost a decision to Mark Johnson, like, fairly early on. Yeah, he was a good fighter. Yeah, he got thrown to the Wolves relatively quickly, and that's why he was able to beat um, Kiroga, especially a comeback in one. Yeah. Clearly yeah. didn't have a tie Yeah, and well, and just Kiroga did not have a style that, you know, would lend well to longevity. Dude, you know, okay. he's forward-marching, throws a lot of punches, did move his head somewhat, but not in a way that I would call super productive. Uh, and he moved his head into a lot of an evil shape punches. You know what I mean? Um, but like, yeah, just not a not the kind of style that you'd think would last super long. And it didn't. Um, you know, his his career. Well, and that quote unquote comeback was 1995 and he lost it and that was it for him. Um, it sounded like he'd taken a couple of uh, somewhat odd jobs after that. And as you know. I guess went back into society or whatever and had been working and had been more or less living a fairly normal life. Um, but it sounds like, I don't know all of the details here because I don't know who they, I don't think they ever said who the friend was yeah. that uh, got something stolen, but a, oh, a bit of a situation okay. here. I'll let you recount this, but a bit of a situation arose in 2004 that's right. It, it's such a stupid, it, it's such an awful situation too, and it's really fucked up. And it's like, 
you know, because it's not what an awful way to go out. And it's just like ridiculous when you think about it. So I don't remember the friend again, like you said, too. But the backstory was that Kiroga was out drinking, um, having beers with a with a with a few acquaintances and friends. And um, like you said, at this point, he left. A, he lived a low key lifestyle by all accounts after he after he retired. But he was still popular in San Antonio, still popular in his community and by all means, a very good person. You know what I mean? Well-meaning kind of one of those guys you see around everyone you know buy him a drink he'd definitely be there to hang out with you and it's like a well-meaning good person you know what i mean just didn't really do much he never saw him in the headlines. Yeah, he's, he's a dude from around the way you know what i'm saying like he was not a celebrity no just a popular guy that was a former world champion that had a lot of good memories for people but um i never saw him in any blotters or anything like that when you would read outside the ropes in ring magazine his name never came up in anything so just kept it until this until this situation so like i said they are out and um they were outside drinking beers together and something like that and um one of the people that was there was a biker a notorious biker by the name of richard merla uh, nicknamed scarface and um he and kuroga were i don't know if they were friends but they were definitely acquaintances they ran you know they kind of knew the same circles and all that and Merlo was a member of the Banditos. Banditos is a very notorious biker gang, kind of on the same level of like, you know, the Hell's Angels and other like 1% gangs that just, well, just jack your shit. You know what I mean? Like they do a lot of crimes and they don't, they don't take much to piss them off. You know what I mean? So everyone is drinking. Um, they've been out for a while now. And I think it was that Kiroga mentioned something to Merla about like you said a long-standing there merla stole i believe it was a scarface poster of all things the movie scarface he stole a scarface poster movie from fucking sucks come on you guys <laughs> i mean sorry yeah if you listen to the show and you love it whatever fight us <laughs> okay it's not that good so sucks. yeah i've watched it a few times trying to get what people really are into and i just can't do it then again i'm sure there's a ton of movies that people think are atrocious that i love so it is what it is but yeah, Scarface is the most overrated movie ever. But I mean, that was the premise of this whole thing. Merla stole a Scarface poster from one of Kiroga's good friends. Um, I think it was because Merla's called Scarface and he felt some kind of, I don't know, he felt some sort of, so, sort of way and wanted to steal it. So he steals it. Um, of all things, you know what I mean? But Kiroga, they're drinking and he brings it up to him. Yo, man, you know, that time you stole his poster and yada, yada, yada. He, he mentioned something about that. And like we said, like I said about these, some of these dudes, it don't take much to piss them off. Even just mention something about the poster like that. And before anyone knew even anything that happened, again, Kiroga still has his guard down. He's not expecting anything. The other people standing around, they're not expecting anything either. And Merla gets really pissed off about this. And they were, you know, arguing a little bit, arguing. And then it escalates to the point where like Kiroga turned his back or something and Merla pounced on him just absolutely pounced on him, took out a knife and just started wailing on him and going crazy. And Kiroga's not a big guy. We mentioned that too. He was like a very small, um, what was he, like well, a little, like 5'2", five, 5'3", five, something yeah, like that. Yeah, he was a little dude. He's a little dude. Merla was not a little guy. Merla's a big guy, you know, close, over six foot or close to it. Outweighs Kiroga probably by a good amount of weight, over close to 100 pounds or so, I'm sure. And it wouldn't be, even though Kiroga is a former fighter, if he's if they've been drinking and he's not anticipating anything, it wouldn't take much for this guy to get the better of him and overpower him, which he did. And he got on top of him and started attacking him, and then he started like stabbing him up. And the people around were like, yo, what the hell, Scarface? What are you doing? And try to grab him up. And before you knew it, 
well, it was just a massacre, right? Practically. Hiroga was left uh, laying next to a car and someone else saw him from the freeway and stopped. And then the cops were called and that's pretty much what happened. The dude who stabbed him was caught later on. Uh, arrest was made like a couple weeks later. And basically what wound up happening was, uh, you know, it's on the Wikipedia page and stuff like that. This dude was kind of disowned or kicked out of the banditos, but there's actually more than that. There's quite a bit more than that. Of course there's more than that. Who am I, bro? I got to find some shit, you know, but no. Um, so the banditos, like you said, a very well-known biker gang, biker crew, whatever you want to call them, motorcycle club. Um, but they, in, not just in the U.S., but in different countries, had like a turf war and a drug war with Hell's Angels. And so like, they, you know, I mean, if you're going to war with the Hell, that's serious shit. You know, it's bloods and crips type of shit, but on motorcycles. And so, you know, basically uh, this dude, Richard Merla, he actually was responsible for a couple of fairly high profile killings in the banditos. Like he was responsible for taking out uh, someone in the hell's angels who was trying to like push into their turf with like their own small club or something like that. And so they killed this person and, and they used this guy, Richard Merla as like, you know, the hitman to do it. Um, and basically this guy had been involved in the banditos for a long time. Point being, this guy was involved in some fairly high level shit going on within this motorcycle club. And either they just didn't like the heat that he brought, or I don't think it had anything to do with, oh man, you killed one of our San Antonio people. We don't like you now. I think it was more like they just didn't want the heat. You know, I mean, sure. I don't think these bikers grew hard all of a sudden, but like, you know, so, but the thing is, when Richard Merla gets brought in, this fool spilled his guts, dude. This fool fucking gave it up, all of it. Like, he he admitted to, a, like, a ton of shit, and he literally was like, I don't give a fuck. I'm not, I don't feel sorry for it. I don't care. I don't even give a shit. And so he went over pretty much exactly what happened, and it was pretty much as you described, dude. Uh, Kiroga confronted him about stealing a Scarface poster that belonged to one of his friends, and he was basically like, fuck you, stabbed him. And that was it. So, I mean, dude, you know, it's it's absolutely insane that these two random fighters, 115 pounds apiece, you know, came up through their own separate careers, met each other, had this incredible fight, and it just all went to shit from there, bro. It's insane, man. Uh, that's why we do these things, man, is because, like like you said earlier, this is one of those fights that, I mean, when when people talk about, like, high-profile in brain you know, injuries in boxing or, like, fights like that, this one kind of gets forgotten about over the years, you know, for whatever reason. But um, Kiroga and Kid Akimfer were just two uh, very, very good fighters that, at that chance they had a chance to meet up and um on the unforgettable night one night in you know 1991 and they put on an incredible fight it was just one of those fights that like it changed both of their lives fortunately um neither for the better it seems but like it was just for that one moment um 
they created history together and like one of those nights that like people that were there or if you watched it live on tv or if you even seen it since then it kind of sticks with you for its brutalness for its honestness of two guys just going to war and either one like you said really want to back up either one even though they were going at it and you clearly can see in some in certain ways that they didn't really hope and that they that, you know it didn't have to get to this point but neither one of them want to concede either at that you know what i mean so they're bonded by that moment you know what i mean and then they were bonded after that fight and just they were always they would always be known for that and you know gangland remember the show gangland history channel they used yep, to do- I, I remember exa- i know exactly what you're gonna say too yeah gangland did an episode on the banditos one time yep. and the main person that they interviewed for that was merla and because uh, he was so forthcoming because he was willing to talk to a whole bunch of people yeah. And he was in jail at that point too, so he didn't give a shit. And he was just going over. And yeah, he already had a life sentence, so it was like, what are they gonna do? But what a cold-hearted dude, man! Like they were talking about him, and he was like, "You saw it in his eyes. He did not give a damn. He didn't give a shit what he did. Not at all. Nothing. Nothing phased him. Not at all. Nothing about that phased him." And he was even talking about if he ever had a chance to get out, it would be scary for them before the stuff he was gonna do to you know the the banditos or other ones that robbed that wronged him because he still you know has that in his heart i'm just like damn and um i don't know if i told you this said said i don't know if i told you this pat but um they uh they do have that cedric mustache yeah they they gangland got in touch the producers of gangland got in touch with cedric before the show because they wanted um footage of the uh kiroga fight and i don't think cedric followed up with him at all or anything but they found something I don't know if they had, um, I don't know if it was uh, legal that they were able to show it, because I think Cedric was even a little annoyed or something like that, but they did show a clip, but I don't think it was from him. Did they just do the old, like, you know, film it on their cell phone, on the computer? Some shit like that. It definitely was, that. It was like very clip. It was like very quick and fleeting, like something that was just in and out. You didn't see it like a whole sustained action. Not even worth like getting your attorney's fucking... Yeah. And Cedric was like, he wrote this whole thing too. He was like, they should put this in the show. And he was like, of all my years of working in boxing, of all the people I'm known as men, Robert Kiroga was a real man, was a real man's man or something like that. And I told him, I'm like, they're not going to put this in the show. <laughs> they're not even going to know what this means, Cedric. Yeah, and he was like, he was like, yes, they will. And I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> That's fucking funny. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Like he had, the, he wrote this whole thing. He was like, they should add this for what I say. I'm like, bro, they're not even gonna mention that you you're not producing the show, bro. Yeah. They just want a clip. They just know that you promote the fight. They're not even gonna mention that, like, ah, bro, whatever. But at the end of the day, like, you know, to get back to it, those are two guys that were bonded forever, and for that one night, Kiroga had a great respected career as an underrated junior bantamweight champion from the '90s and all that. Don't get me wrong, but he's ever he's gonna be forever remembered for that. Kid Akeem, same thing. Even though it was outside the ring activities, kind of darkened things a little bit. He's always going to be remembered for that one night in San Antonio when those guys came together and just created an absolute war. So Lit that's the place what up. Yeah. And, and they deserve to be remembered for that. And I'm glad we talked about this because it's just one of those fights that, like, it deserves to be shed its light, you know, to have some light shed on it, even though it was unfortunate the way everything turned out. Yeah. Like I opened up saying, you know, this is not us laughing at it. It's not us trying to ridicule it or anything. It's just, you know, a lot of these things don't get remembered very well. Or if they do get remembered, it's like in fragments and pieces, and we can kind of try to bring it all together a little bit. So that's all we're really trying to do. And on some, well, and, and on some level too, it's just something we enjoy. We get our jollies, you know, not on the sad shit, but just on the history period. Oh. So it's 
it kind of scratches that itch for us too. Um, but Eris, I appreciate it, bro. Good shit, yeah, man. Good shit. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. However, it is you tuned in. If you listened in on the podcast, thank you so much. Uh, whatever app it is you listened in to, subscribe. Leave us a little rating or a comment. We appreciate that stuff. If you watch on YouTube, thanks again as well. Also appreciated. Subscribe, leave a comment. We'll try to get back to you. And as far as social media goes, we are both on, well, <laughs> who knows at this point? It's all so up in the air, bro. But both of us individually are on social media. My boy Eris is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. Also, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on both. Uh, well, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, and it is on Facebook. So if you want to check us out there, you're more than welcome to. But in the meanwhile, say hello. We'll say hello back. And Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one, y'all. Yeah.